0: This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen with our ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker.
1: I am here with Joseph Politano of Aprikitas Economics, which I probably just mispronounced (laughs) after going through it three times with Joseph here about how to pronounce it. Uh, I just said it's been a long time since my last Latin class, but so bear with me. But anyway, Joseph, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, great to have you. Very excited about this conversation. And I wanted to jump off on some research that you've done and some posts on your website which I will not try to mispronounce <laughs> but it's and regarding housing and your points here are that I'll let you talk about it more but the idea that housing has not really come down as much as it is going to and is not and and that maybe that is being underappreciated by the market and by investors that housing could basically have a, a bigger fall and take a bigger, effect negative effect on the economy if I'm phrasing that right but tell me tell me about it tell me what your what your take is here.
2: So what I would say is I think we're at this really interesting point in the housing market and I'm not without making like a, a, a price forecast here. what I would say is if you were to look at like you look at where interest rates are where mortgage rates have moved and you look at where housing starts so you know new housing is moved. And if you just looked at those two data points, right, Ignored everything else that's going on in the world, and and I showed you, you would say, oh, you know, there had to have been tons of layoffs. There had to have been a really big impact on uh, the sector economically, you know, and we know this is one of the the biggest sectors through which the Federal Reserve affects the real economy is, is through the housing market. And so far, there really hasn't been that big of an impact. So if you look at, like, uh, employment. A big example here. So you're saying you, you raise interest rates, people get less mortgages, they start new fewer houses. People in the construction industry should lose their jobs um, if that happens. So far, we've really not seen that. Uh, we've seen it like decelerate. So the jobs have stagnated, but they're not going down actively. I think part of that is, is definitely like a lag story, but it's also like, Mortgage rates have been going up for almost a year now, you know, as of recording. So at some level, you have to say <laughs> it's clear that there is some pent up demand. I think something has been underappreciated is uh, even though starts have been really strong because of all the supply chain issues, because of everything going on in, in the overall economy, completions have been really weak. And the amount of housing under construction is still a ton. Uh, and that's meant, you know, the Fed raising rates hasn't had like the perfectly expected impact on the housing market um that I think a lot of people were looking for going into this year.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I was just looking here about some of the data that came in today. And we had initial jobless claims to your point well below forecasts. So yeah, it doesn't look like the employment picture has really changed. Yeah. So how much of this is a lag? Because they say that the the once the Fed starts tightening, it takes about it can take up to a year or more before this works its way through the economy. And the first rate hike was in March of 2022. We're now January, so we're, it's only ten months in. So could that be that we're just wait? We just it just hasn't worked its way through yet. I think that's part of it. So
2: especially with housing, you have this like uh, two-headed coin. With interest rate hikes, because on the one hand, obviously interest rates go go up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just doing your discounted uh, cash flow model, the value of assets are going to go down. And you expect housing prices to go down. But the same side of that coin is that mortgage rates go up. That means less new housing, which means in the very short term, you know, supply becomes more constrained. So you actually expect prices to go up. But I think that's where you can see a lot of these weird lags, where sometimes the Fed raises rates, and in the near term. You actually see rents increasing, right? Because of the supply effect, but at the same time, like we've seen a pretty robust fall in housing starts. They're down like 30, if you look at single-family homes, which obviously are the ones most affected by rate hikes, it's down like thirty percent. Um, and you know, mortgage rates have, at the moment, as of recording, <laughs> kind of stabilized and yeah, they're percent. down off their highs. Mm-hmm. So at some level, I think the big question is okay if mortgage rates are stabilizing, if we feel like the Fed, even though we, we expect them to hike a bit more, their path at least feels a little more set. You know, It feels a little more clear than it it did throughout the rest of this year when they were constantly updating the forecast to be higher and higher interest rates. Does the housing market stabilize? And because housing is such a big part of the business cycle does it mean the US economy kind of stabilizes.
1: Yeah, and your view on this is that it may not. Is that right? My,
2: my view, like I said, I don't want to make a strong forecast either way, but I think my view is that that's like underappreciated factor in the U.S. economic outlook. That's what I'll say. That's what I'll say.
1: Fair enough. (laughs) And How, what do you, what are you anticipating in terms of a drop? I mean, home prices, I'm actually not fully aware of the data. I know that Case-Shiller is pretty bit of a lag there, Uh, but they've dropped, but they haven't dropped that terribly, have they?
2: Yeah. I was going to say Case-Shiller has been down like, couple months and usually they're the fastest to react. Okay. Um, but I think it, you know it's same thing with um these indexes lag right you know market conditions. And so I think that even just mechanically from how from how the market looks right now, they're probably going to go down even if that's not technically housing prices going down. But I think uh mostly this is manifested in like a lower, higher base rate, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but it's like compared to 2020, everything's still more expensive, but yes. compared to like the mania uh, a year or so ago, everything looks cheaper. And so if you mm-hmm. look at like uh, the Redfin data that I saw this morning, and uh, don't quote me on these numbers, but I'm sure you can look them up, is that like the share of units selling for below listing price was back to pre-pandemic levels. Okay. Right. But that but think about what that means. The listing price is higher. <laughs> so the prices are, are maybe right. The listing prices have been yeah, rising right, right, so right. rapidly over the last few years. So the share going for below listing price is back to normal. So you don't have this like bidding war overtaking the housing market, but that's mm-hmm. still a market where prices are a lot higher than they were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a couple of years ago.
1: Okay. I mean, I guess a lot of this does depend on the Fed, and we'll talk about the Fed in a little bit because of interest rates. And yeah, once interest rates come down. People can start buying homes again. I mean, not that they've really stopped, but I guess doing more of it. And yeah, and to your point, interest rates have kind of stabilized. But how 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 much of a trough do we see here in housing prices? Do you have any any expectations of that?
2: I I don't have a, a precise okay. expectation there now.
1: Yeah, I saw I, I went uh, saw this speech by the the, the um, J P Morgan Mike 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 Firoli. Uh, JP Morgan, chief economist, he says that 10% drop in home, home prices is what they're anticipating. So, which doesn't sound like much. I and mean, we're already maybe down a couple percent from the high. So a couple more percent. But I guess that begs the question.
0: Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information
1: if we do have an economic slowdown and you hear a lot of these, this talk now about mild recessions and is there ever really a thing like a mild recession when we're going through it? Because I know it's been a while other than the 2020 recession, but I mean, is it kind of maybe naive to expect that we'll even have a mild recession and that there won't be pain felt throughout the economy?
2: Yeah. I I think that the phraseology also kind of bothers me because you know like the, the point of calling it a recession is to, to highlight the magnitude of the economic downturn yeah right to you know to call it a mild recession is a little bit contradictory it's like a jumbo shrimp situation
1: uh-huh.
2: um, but I think you know we're definitely in a weird period. I don't think given what we have right now that you could call this period a, a recession a 2022 a recession but definitely a really big slowdown and people are feeling that. And people can feel um, a really big slowdown in localized ways and more broadly, like 2016, 2015, 2016 is a good example where you had like a pretty serious global slowdown. You know, uh, right before the pandemic is arguably an example Mm -hmm. of like a pretty serious global slowdown. Neither of those are recessions, but um, at the same time, those were vastly different periods to what we have right now. My thought process when I Talk to people about this is to say, like, listen, if you go look at the Fed's projections right now, the, the FOMC members' projections, what they say is that over the next year, the unemployment rate should go up about a percent. And 1%. that right, about 1%. So it's about 3.5% right now. They expect to be about four and a half percent next year. That to me would be a recession. You know, there's a significant amount of people that are they're losing their jobs. That only is going to happen in a recession. In fact, like a 1% increase in the unemployment rate is exclusive with a recession in like the post-war economic period for the U S now, you know, if you're, if you're going out there and saying, I think there's two ways you can disagree with that. You can disagree with it and say the fed's wrong. It's really hard for people to hire still, even though interest rates are so high unemployment rates, not going to, you know, uh, go up by that much. And we're going to have this soft landing where um you don't, have a recession because unemployment rate doesn't move. The other view is like the, the worst view where it's like, okay, if they put all this momentum in the opposite direction, all this kinetic force to say we need to slow the economy down and then the unemployment rate goes up 1%, it usually doesn't just go up 1% stop. You know, it usually goes up more than that. Right. Uh, so I, I, I think it's like a weird period. I right. saw... Um, Someone at Bloomberg, and I, I apologize. We, I think we both have this thing where you, you catch so much information and then you yeah. forget where it comes from. <laughs> but um, he talked about a rolling recession, which is kind of a weird framework, but I, I kind of, I think it's worth thinking about where it's like, okay, if you're in housing construction right now or over the last year, that was definitely arguably a recessionary environment just because of how much new starts fell. Right. If you're in tech right now, I think it feels like a recessionary environment because of the weird amount of layoffs compared to the historical norm, even though you know, on net, it's not like uh this is a ton of, of people compared to the entire economy. Uh, if you're in manufacturing right now, so you look at like the, the PMIs, those are, are very recessionary. But if you're like a hotel or restaurant right now, I don't think it feels recessionary right. to you. Right. And so the whole point being that like this. Uh, we had this weird sectoral impact in 2020. So it hit people differently, it hit parts of the economy differently. Maybe same thing happens here. You have this like weird sort of rolling slowdown uh, that hmm. hits different parts of the economy
1: in different ways over different periods of time. Right, which would kind of be un- unprecedented.
2: I but- I think so. I think unprecedented though, unfortunately it's been like the most used word of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um fair. I don't know, but like, I think genuinely... So one of the the most frustrating things for me about analyzing the economy right now is that like the best thing to do pre-pandemic if you wanted to say like what's the most leading indicators for economic strength you're looking at like manufacturing mm. industries because they respond quicker they're much more discretionary uh, and and they're you know the employment is much more volatile. So example if you look at overtime hours for manufacturing employees You know, that's an important labor indicator, you know, because if there's no overtime, then eventually people start laying workers off, right? And right now in the U.S., like the overtime numbers look like almost as bad as the 2008 recession. Hmm. Yeah, it's like- Coming into it. Right, like, right, right. Coming into the 2008 recession, like it's serious fall over the last year. But at the same time, you have all these, you know, uh, if you talk to anyone who's working, a service sector- uh, industry job. They're saying the exact opposite. They're saying, you know, I can't get enough hours out of a lot of my workers. And so you're saying this is these things that used to be leading indicators Mm. are kind of getting strained. Uh, motor vehicles are another one just because, you know, cars have been in such a bad shortage recently that, you know, the, the data is not, uh, representative of the strength of the economy. It's representative of like specifics in the car sector.
1: Huh? So it sounds like there is some still some slack in the economy uh from what you just said. Uh but is there maybe a concern that the Fed has already overdone it? Because the I mean the the number of rate hikes and the the rate of them was kind of I mean again here we go unprecedented although it wasn't in this case. It was because you know Volcker I think but it was a pretty severe reaction. Now, granted, they were caught with their pants down on the whole transitory inflation thing. But is there a chance that they've already overdone it?
2: Yeah, I think so. If you would talk to me, so we're recording in, in January now. If you would come to me like six months ago in, in um, July or August, I would have said that like the on balance, they're they're tightening so much, like the financial conditions are worsening so much that there's a very likely chance of a recession. I think because of like the supply improvements we've gotten since then, the data we've gotten since then, and like, you know, talking about housing as an example earlier, but like some sectors were surprisingly resilient to the amount of rate hikes that we got. You know, we haven't had that yet, but it's still, you know, a pretty sizable chance. Mm -hmm. I think it's a weird thing where people are like um, saying, you know, if the the best forecasters are saying there was an 80% chance of a recession in, Summer, now they're saying there's a 50% chance, and I think sometimes you can look at that like 20 to 50% growth in the soft landing chance. It's like, oh, well, things look a lot better, forgetting that like if at any point, you know, previously you said, oh, there's a 50% chance of a recession next year, that would be looked at as a really bad, you know, economic outlook.
1: Right. Um, there's also the Fed's track record on this, let's not forget. And somebody that I've had on the podcast was, uh, this is last year, actually. And he had the numbers, I forget what they were. It's something like three out of 16 times the Fed has been able to engineer a soft landing. So for people to say that it's unprecedented is uh, not true, actually. So they've been able to do it. Most recently, actually, um, Powell did it back in, uh, what was it 2018? Mm-hmm. Fourth quarter, yeah. But, um, the, but still, that's not a good batting average. So, right. uh, and there's also the fact that the number of times that they have overdone it on keeping rates too low for too long, right? So I think it's really hard, especially,
2: like I said, given, given the Fed's track record, when you get to these like crunch points, when they're, they're tightening rates really aggressively, a lot of times the like breaking points aren't known,
1: Mm.
2: right? And part of that's because I, so at some level they're unknowable because the economy is so complex, but some level it's because of, you know, how the Fed forecasts, what's what's their objectives and how those can change really rapidly. I think 2018, like to today is a good example of the fact that the Fed is a lot faster mm. at moving than they have been historically. But at the same time, it's like, right the right now their base case is, you know, it's not going to be a soft landing. It's at least going to be kind of bumpy. And the track record uh, in the U.S. at least is is hard to look at. I think the best, if you're looking for like the idealistic example, maybe it's like 95, 96, okay. where you had, so you have economic slowdown, very clear, pronounced slowdown in employment growth, slowdown in GDP growth, slowdown in productive growth, but it's not nowhere near anything that would call, cause a recession, I don't, especially compared to like 2001, 2008. I think if you were to look in like, a weird historical example, I know people point to like the 1920, like Spanish flu and, and the, the recession that occurred afterwards, it's like good comparison. But I still think he, just because of how much the economy changed, maybe the yeah. better comparison is something like the Korean War, Korean War, World War II period, where you have this big surge of inflation as the economy you know, shifts from, in that case, war mode to peace mode. And that comes down after a year or so, by and large, on its own.
1: So we're going back going back to the early 50s.
2: Right. That's like the historical, that's the sort of best historical example of like, I guess, the the transitory narrative. What I'm saying you're looking at like some combination of the two. Obviously, the right. Fed's hiking. They think they need to do something to stop inflation, but at the same time, you know, some of it is, you know, like the food and energy stuff that's out of their hand that they think is sure. kind of renormalizing off in the corner <laughs> without sure. them having to do anything about it.
1: Sure. All right, good. That gives us a lot to talk about in the second half of the show with the Fed. But I want to first take a short break and come back and ask you some questions about yourself and how you got to be to this station in your career, how you got started in the whole thing. And we'll do that in a minute, but we'll first take a short break. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. Everybody else please check out the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech.
1: By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website, dot com will do the trick and we also have a substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices same benefits same details contrarianpod.substack.com so if you already have a substack account and use it or have the app and use that that's probably the best way to go so contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead. And what is likely to move markets such as economic data releases earnings and other things it is really good and that is completely unbiased of course so check that out contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech now on with the show welcome back everybody apokitas economics again probably mispronounced it but uh you said you started this thing a little while ago, and you made this your basically day job. Um, you have a very active Twitter, Joseph Politano, I believe is the, yes. And so this is the segment of the show where we ask our guest to tell us a little bit more about himself or herself and how he or she arrived at this station in his or her career. And so, yeah, curious how you got your start here, your origin story and in investing to put things in Marvel terms and how you it up where you are today. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's a pretty winding story, I think. Uh,
1: well, don't get too winding, we don't have too much time, but go on. <laughs>
2: too much time. Before the pandemic, I worked in the Peace Corps, so I was abroad oh, wow. uh, in Uganda doing economic development work. Obviously COVID happened, so I got bounced back to the States. So I was, you know, I I, I got a job in the States, but I wanted to, you know, do more econ work. And especially at the time, you know, that conversation was happening online, was happening on Twitter. So I started the Substack as just kind of a way to participate in that conversation and as a way to like build up my own communication skills. So I was keeping to it for uh, about a year. And it was at that point where I was like, actually people like this, <laughs> you know, which is a, a great privilege when, when people want to read the things that you want to write. Mm. Um, and I had a big enough audience where I thought, you know, I could write a whole lot more um, if I made this my full time job. And so, as of uh, September of this year, or of September of last year, oh my goodness, 2023. Yeah. September of last year, uh, the newsletter is my full time job now. And it's been going really well. I've, I've like caught up to the, the amount of income I was making beforehand. So, I'm very happy with that. I really would enjoy writing. Um, trying to keep to a schedule more, <laughs> but yeah, it's been a really exciting journey.
1: Wow. That's wild. So is it still on Substack or, or not? You took it off, right?
2: It's it's still on oh, Substack. I have my own domain name. I see. I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, technically cool. it's still on Substack.
1: Okay. I'll have to link to it then for sure. I didn't, I wasn't even aware of that. And you, um, as about, how did you, before that, how did you get interested in economics? Did you study it? Did you, how, how did that all come about?
2: It's it's funny. Cause I, uh, so I went to college and I wanted to do political science um, and I had the idea of like going into law or government mm-hmm. or stuff. But I think this is like a generational thing of like memories of 2008 recession. Mm. Um, there's this thought of like, if you're going to go do artsy fartsy thing in college, you should also have like a serious backup plan. <laughs> econ was my serious backup plan. And by sophomore year, I was like, you know what? This policy thing is not actually that interesting. I really like the econ stuff. I should focus on that more and at the time it was a lot of focus on um the kind of econ work that i would do in peace corps but obviously that also uh, was like a base knowledge of macro and things like that that i use sure. um in my day job.
1: oh so you were actually doing economics work for the peace corps i thought you were like trudging yeah. around in the in the jungle there or whatever yeah <laughs>
2: um yeah it was i wasn't there for very long because of the pandemic but the idea was to do work in like uh, youth entrepreneurship, uh, like women's empowerment, and and like, um, earning market incomes outside of the household. But yeah, it was a, it was definitely a, a really crazy experience, and I'm very thankful. Uganda's a great country. I, I uh, implore people to visit.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've never been. South Africa is the closest I've been. Um, <laughs> and that was for the World Cup in 2010. Oh, wow! Dating myself here, but yeah, but wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, and so the interest and in, but you didn't actually work for, not that this is any kind of disqualification, but you didn't work for any, for any kind of, uh, you know, bank or, or, or research firm or anything like that before going into the Peace Corps. No. Nope. Went there right out of college.
2: I wrote that right oh. out of college, which is a pretty, That's nice. <laughs> unfortunately a normal thing to do. Um, but yeah. I think, I think especially nowadays, like the environment is, um, if you can prove yourself, you can get a job more than the credentials specifically. Mm-hmm. And you know, proving itself online has its own biases. But there's a ton of people I know who have like tweeted their way into jobs, especially sure. When, <laughs> especially sure. during everything that went on uh with crypto over the last couple of years.
1: Yes, yes. No, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, that's that's cool. That's great. I mean I'm I'm always happy to have um younger people on. I've had a few on uh but yeah, most people tend to follow the traditional, you know, college, business school, sell side, buy side, maybe, um, or whatever. But so yes, yeah, so it's very cool to have people who break the mold. Um, so good luck to you with all of that. So let's move back here to the Fed. Basically telegraphed a 25 basis point rate hike, which begs the question what they can do to kind of uh supply any kind of positive surprise at this point. But Probably more interesting than what they do at this meeting, and probably most of you are already listening to this after the meeting anyway. <laughs> but it's more—it's more interesting of what they're going to be doing the rest of the year. And the there, if you look at, at the Fed fund futures, it looks like the market is pricing and starting to have rate cuts. So, what are, what are your what are your thoughts on that, and where the Fed will be going this year?
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's an interesting historical conversation because the post 2008 period, the Fed put a lot of emphasis on uh, trying to to set market expectations for future interest rates really directly. And this was the QE periods. Um, This was like the lower for longer periods. And this whole time they're saying, we're not meeting the employment side of our objectives. The growth is still pretty stagnant. We think we need to keep stimulating. And we just can't We can't communicate that, we're struggling. So they set up all these institutional institutional things to communicate that. And then like, the, I'm thinking about like the dot plots as an example I was saying, okay, well, this is what we think interest rates are going. Uh, and now they're in this really weird, like opposite situation where they are trying to communicate, hey, we as an organization are very worried about inflation. We as an organization think that interest rates need to be higher for longer. And everybody keeps thinking that there's going to be a recession and we're going to cut interest rates. We're not going to do that. <laughs> hmm. um, so it's like this weird uh, headlights moment because obviously, from their perspective, um, if the Fed, if if markets are pricing in cuts, you know, one that's communication failure. Two, that could be you know that's lower interest rates in the future, and they view that as maybe worsening inflation now. So it's you know exacerbating today's problem. But at the same time, like, the, the market is the market. Um, and if they see these pretty serious uh, recession risks, they're going to, you know, price rates accordingly. They're not going to say, well, the, the, like, deer in headlight situation is, um, is there enough of a slowdown that induces the Fed to cut faster than they want to? And that's the other interesting thing is because they, they they are pricing in cuts, but they're pricing in cuts for in the future, yeah. you yeah. know? Much later than uh, markets are, and they so they come out with like the um, when they, like the like the speaking brigades come out and they're saying actually we, we're we don't quite agree with these pricings we're we need to convince markets. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think I think yeah, it was Kashkari that was yeah. like the most blunt about it. It was like I don't know right. what these guys are doing.
1: Yeah right, right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. But I wonder if a lot of this is is maybe you know we've had this Fed pivot hopium I mean, that's been a story for about a year, right? Most of 2022, especially the back half of the year, it seemed like there were, there were were you would get these little bounces in markets because of hope that the Fed would pivot, right? And Powell came out with a very forceful statement at Jackson Hole, what was it, late August? And that kind of did a good job of communicating that they were serious about inflation for a little while. And then Fed hopium started coming back. So is this maybe just another period where we're having this Fed hopium bounce.
2: I I think so. It is a weird. It was a weird dynamic because especially early on in the year, you would have this like, you know, this hilariously in retrospect, d- doomer pricing where people were considering like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna raise rates one percent each meeting for the next six yeah. meetings or whatever, <laughs> um, and whenever the actual meeting would happen, you know, you'd have by and large what the telegraphed outcome was and so markets would calm down like rather immediately um and so i think we're kind of getting like the inverse of that where instead of it being markets are pricing in this like uh, serious risk of a overcorrection of like m- much higher rates than the fed is wanting markets are pricing in this like Period of the Fed might actually cut here. Maybe they'll maybe they'll cut here. And the Fed says what they've kind of been telegraphing. Markets react accordingly. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think the the big the big counterpoint to that, um, and I I always try to like I don't want to say play both sides, but I always try to give a holistic picture more than I'm trying to tug one up is like what I said earlier about employment. If you think that the Fed can't like catch falling knife, that unemployment rises by one percent and then it keeps rising. That's a serious thing where um, the Fed might be behind the ball again and they'd have to intervene and they'd have to cut faster than they want to, faster than they're they're telegraphing right now.
1: Right. Yeah, right. And then we have all kinds of other problems. But I mean, are, they wouldn't <laughs> they wouldn't do that, though, unless there's a major collapse in the economy, would they? I think um,
2: I think part of it is like, you know, you're going to have to get some cuts because just as. Inflation comes down, you know, to keep real rates constant, nominal rates have to go down. Yeah. But yeah, I think that like kind of like aggressive, you know, really aggressive cutting would only happen if something, you know, really boiled over um mm. a crazy amount. And it's it's actually like remarkable historically. So we're in almost February right now, but uh it's it's weird to remember that like when the, the Russian invasion happened. Mm. You know, that was when they were talking about half basis point hikes and they went with a quarter or, you know, half a percent hikes. They went with quarter percent hikes because they were worried, you know, because of one of the That's largest right. wars in recent memory. Uh-huh. Um, so if that only moved them <laughs> a quarter of a percent, you got to think about what would move them, you know, more than that at this point.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, having rem- remembering the Greenspan Fed from the early 2000s and, how long he kept interest rates at zero after 9-11. I mean, it was a couple of years there and that basically created the housing bubble. So I mean, you would think they've learned from that, but I don't know. Uh, any any other surprises that you're expecting for this year?
2: I would say, I think the um, most interesting stuff is going to come out of Japan. Mm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sure people have been tracking, like they they... Uh, Japan you know, has very lagging economic growth over the last 30, 40 years at this point point. Mm-hmm. Um, and BOJ has been pulling out all the stops historically to try to fix that and now you have this point where they're the odd man out um, everybody else is raising rates and they don't want to um, and so I think the big there's a big question mark there about the longevity of yield curve control. Mm-hmm. I think people have been a little too quick to say that they're going to abandon it. Um, you know, because VOJ views this as a really important thing. But I think at the same time, it's clearly a very awkward position for them to have to be buying like every <laughs> government yeah. bond. They can do it, but it's becoming like onerous to them. And so I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, and I think you're starting to see this already, like they're experimenting with different policy tools and trying to figure a way around this. I think that's a big deal. And I think um, also this was like the the refrain from Exante Data, which is um, another subsect that that I recommend, but they were talking about like central bank divergence as like a theme to look out for mm. in 2023. And I really like that idea of saying like, okay, 2022. Everybody had this, you know, big inflation problem. Everyone's behind the ball. Everyone's raising in rates. Now the question for 2023 is, uh, you know, we know that historically these countries don't often have every, you know, these these movements all at the same time. So who cuts first? Who hikes the least? You know, there's going to be this big shift where different central banks are talking about their local problems differently.
1: Huh? Don't they all have to kind of follow the Fed though?
2: They all kind of do. Um, I think, you know, that's that's part of the thing where you're talking about like global yeah. credit conditions. That's very Fed-driven, but at the same time, that like uh, there's obviously some variation there.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean the BOJ, but they're basically the, the Fed of the East, right? I mean the yen is kind of the reserve currency in Asia, I guess, um, or the the, the safety uh, gauge. So, but what what would that do globally? If there is a divergence, or even if the BOJ does, right if they if they like what if they keep you know zero or below zero or whatever it is, uh, as the Fed keeps hiking, um, you know, what would that do other than make the yen even less expensive in terms of dollars?
2: I think that's part of it, but I think um, the example I always try to point to is like the the Australia example in the 2008 mm. recession where you know they had this this central bank divergence both before and and after and as a result they had like a much stronger much they were hit much weaker uh and they recovered much stronger than most other high income nations okay and so I'm saying I think you might start seeing this uh it's it's possible that the situation central bank can diverge their policy responses diverge and so you could have this like you know select divergence in, economic outcomes.
1: Huh. That would be interesting because that yeah. hasn't happened in a long time, has it? I mean, the global economy has been lockstep since certainly this century.
2: I, I think um, I, I wouldn't quite agree with that because you think okay. about like the, the European economy in the 2010s. So 2008, very synchronous hit, but like the, the 2010s was a, right. a much worse period for Europe That's than right. it was for you know, the United States, North America, of course, you know, Australia, and so I think you could see, you know, stuff like that uh, starting to emerge. I'm not trying to say another euro crisis, but I'm saying, um, you could see this this divergence in economic outcomes,
1: yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's a good point, actually. And China also, exactly, that's another great example here, yeah, although they, right, and that you could actually argue that that was why Australia, as a main exporter to China, did better during, during 08 than. I just my little headlight just went off. Right <laughs> than than others, and that I must do more to that than interest rate policy. But that's another topic for another day that we don't have time to debate. Um, so would would you see that as an opportunity, and or what are the chances here that somebody screws something up royally, be it a central bank or something else? And what do you think of the whole crypto implosion? I guess cryptos have recovered. Uh, and the the general textbook response is that this is not a very large part of the economy, and that basically Bitcoin could go away and it would not leave much of a dent. Uh, what are your? Do you have any views on that?
2: I think um, it's a really interesting question. The first part I would say is like we you have had this. Um, I like to describe it as a financial crisis in the crypto space. You know, and in a lot of ways is like a new version. Very classic, like uh, financial panics, Mm -hmm. but has it so far had any serious impact on the material economy? Because most people aren't um, borrowing the money; they don't take take out mortgages from FTX, and and God help anyone who did. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, But I would not say that that's you know, uh, I would not say this that exclusivity. And so yeah. the, the stuff that I always point to is like the, the stable coins now, a lot of them make up significant chunks of uh short-term, you know, narrow parts of short-term funding markets. And I think you saw um in the like the crypto implosion a couple months ago, uh, you saw like this big uptick in a lot of measures of um bank stress. Mm. And so I think there's some of this where you're saying, okay, it's not, you know, one-to-one, I, you know, even the worst things that something that would tear down the traditional financial system, it happens in crypto and that's Tuesday. But yeah, right. that doesn't mean that it's like just a fire in the corner that we can all ignore wholly. It does have some spillover effects that sure. are worth taking seriously. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's interesting. I think if you're, uh, if you'd asked me to revise what I thought, where I thought crypto was going uh, a year ago to now. I think a year ago, I was much more, um, I, I was much more out of the thought process that this was going to become, that sort uh, of institutionalized is not the correct word here. Maybe more like uh, cleaned up, right? You had all this big push by governments to say, okay, this is a big enough thing now. We have to take it seriously and we have to like put it into the adult financial world. Um, and now I think the view has shifted in a large way to be like, oh, that's kind of the dumpster fire and mm-hmm. we should kind of you know, control it as it was dumpster fire. And that was maybe not the best idea to <laughs> try to hook this thing up to other parts of the, the economy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll say anybody who thinks that it, it, it it'll just be something in the corner that can be ignored. I point you to 1998 long-term capital management, and what do- took them down, and what by uh, default then almost took down the entire financial system, was Russian bonds. And Russian bonds were this tiny at the time, were this tiny little illiquid thing, and they had it levered up so much that it caused a systemic issue for the world's banks, and they had to like engineer a, a bailout. Um, you know, there's a book that's been written about it by Roger Lowenstein called "When Genius Failed." which is incidentally what I would make all the junior hedge funds reporters read um, right when they started their jobs. But anyway, that's another story, but, um, but yeah, but that is, so people say, oh, it's only so-and-so much. Well, yeah, nominally, right. Cover it up and you have, you know, you never know where the bodies are buried, right? <laughs> so that's maybe the word of caution from on, on cryptos.
2: Yeah.
1: But maybe that's and, just, and the, I was about to say, one. because
2: I, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, myself as a crypto expert but this is a good example where if you had asked me uh six months ago like where's the most trustworthy place in crypto to put your money i would have put fdx in like really because i I, like i said i don't know but i think your average joe um to use a bad term thought that they were normal trustworthy organization you know they have super bowl ads and whatever and then they fell apart a few months later so i think that you know uh Hmm. that kind of stuff is. Uh, always worrying, even if it's just in crypto.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. All right, cool. That's all, that's all very interesting. Uh, Joseph Politano, thank you so much for coming on to the Contrarian Investor podcast today. Very interesting conversation. In closing, maybe tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and about your research and how they go about finding a signing up. And I will then put that in the show notes as well.
2: Sure. Um my my name is Joseph Politano. My Twitter account is just my name. So it's P O L I T A N O uh it's my last name. And then the Substack is apricitas.io. Um now it, it sounds like a K sound, but it is a C because it's Latin. Word. Right. if you just look up the Joseph Politano Substack, also gonna come up. <laughs> yeah. So Apricitas, um,
1: That's how okay, cool. All right. Got yes, it.
2: The unpronounceability is a core part of the brand.
1: <laughs> Very cool. And is it this is a free substack, huh?
2: I, I um so what I do is I publish uh once a week free on Saturdays. And then I usually have two other posts a week that are for paying subscribers.
1: Very cool. So it all is right.
2: how I put bread on the table.
1: Nice. Um, but yeah, so yeah, do sign up yeah.
2: there if you if you don't want to pay too.
1: Very cool. All right. All right, I want to talk to you offline about that because I've uh have my own Substack, as you may have heard. Um but for now, let's uh close this. Thanks all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.